Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. We've we lost a lot of good men, and uh, <laughs> you're about to lose another. Cylon today with my own hands. Um, gun jams. Uh, next thing I know, this metal.
bastard is looming over me. I don't think it expected me to charge. <laughs> I killed it with, with a screwdriver. Yeah. <laughs> Frackin' screwdriver. Type 4. Type 4 standard used to uh, to fix bookshelves to walls. Can you believe it? I killed a silo with a Type 4 standard fracking screwdriver. <laughs> Look. <sighs> the Blood and Chrome podcaster, they're, they're calling me a hero. Oh, God. I know I leave this war as a hero for killing a Cylon, thank God for that. I used to I used to work in City Hall. Uh just sat in a room, hot little room, closed off. Nobody saw me from day to day. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. And now that little guy that little guy in that little room, now that guy killed a Cylon. <laughs> so point is, they die. I know this now, and so do you, and that gives me hope. They die! The bastards die! You know? You know, in, in the movies, when the, when the hero gets shot, there's no pain. <laughs> well, it hurts. It hurts a lot. It got me. It got me three times as I was jamming away with my Type 4 screwdriver. <laughs> and it's uh, it's lying here next to me with that, that constant beeping going off all the time. I guess... Uh, I guess the last thing it did was send out a tracking signal. Well, let him come. Not sure how many, but I got them covered. I, I've uh, been left a few weapons, you see, if I can cause as much damage as possible. Well, <laughs> this, uh, this old building uh, is booby-trapped. I just have to flip a switch. Well, look, one more thing. We will win this war. We are beginning to fight back. The Cylons didn't expect that. There are some brave men and women laying down their lives for the freedom of others. So, look, I sit and I wait, but please, please, listen to the Blood and Chrome podcast. We've rigged up a makeshift network. I, I find them online at bloodandchromepodcast.com. Follow them, bloodandchromepodcast.com. Listen to them. Blood and Chrome podcast.com. That's all I ask. Follow the Blood and Chrome podcast. I keep saying it. I keep saying it, but you've got to listen. They talk... <coughs> they talk of a new hero uniting the tribes of man once more. He's also sp spreading the meaning of freedom. <laughs> uh, they hail him. They hail him <laughs> as our new savior. I don't know about that. But anyway, it, it gives me hope once more. He, he's called 
Adama. see them from up here. They've got uh, got the place surrounded. <laughs> There's more than I thought. Well, that's good. That's good! Come on! Come on! Closer! Closer! Guess who killed one of your buddies? That's right! It's up here! Come on, you freaking tin pots! You get what's coming! I killed one of you today! It felt good! Oh, so good! I killed it with my bare hands! A man! Nothing more! Born out of love! He killed one of your mother cracks with his bare hands! Me! How do you like that? They're here! Motherfucking pigs! Let me take you somewhere! Special!
this is Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 180. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Just before we start, I just honestly want to just send out my thoughts and prayers to everyone that's been affected with this tsunami over in Japan. I know we've got some listeners over there, and like we, like anyone who was kind of watching those pictures, those images that came through the other day, that was just unreal. Do you know what I mean? So honestly, Starships over sends. I know everyone that's listening there, you know, is sending out the thoughts and the prayers to people that's stuck there and having even now ongoing issues. You know, with all the kind of radiation leaks and everything. Just got all my thoughts are going out towards you. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We're going to reveal Blood and Chrome podcast. What is all that about? And our good friend Larry goes out in a hail of bullets. Well, Blood and Chrome podcast, I'll, actually I'll jump into this straight away and then I'll kind of tell you what's coming in today's show. First off though, I just want to thank, a big thank you to Diane Severson and to Larry for, you know, Larry putting them, work, you know, putting my little kind of pathetic words there giving them life like that just truly awesome and Diane for that song is just so like hauntingly fantastic do you know what I mean if, I don't know if many people can remember Diane and I guess Diane and Starship's over and me go back quite a while and Diane got in touch with us and says oh I'm a soprano singer and, and that's, that's what I do and I listen to that song and it just blows away do you know what I mean so hauntingly nice it's like Fantastic, and it was done with the choir of the Church of Christ the King, and she did it in Germany. And it's like a, you know, and actually Diane says it's not a very good recording. It Diane, it is fantastic. You know what I mean? And I'm gonna set up. This is what we're doing there now. We're doing another podcast, and it's just like a, it's a kind of spin on a TV. You know, there's a new TV show hopefully coming out, and you know, I just wanted to kind of a, a really distinct promo for it. And then the promo was actually, it just snowballed from there. And, you know, like I say, I listened to Diane's song and thought, that's the kind of intro music I want. And I knew, you know, even before I kind of penned any words, I wanted Larry in there to be this kind of, he, this little hero guy. You know, exactly what Larry, you know, Larry, like I say, even his day job is in this like little hot little sweaty office. And, you know, and it's funny, you <laughs> just wanted the guy go out in a hail of bullets you know what I mean even when I kind of wrote the first word of the first promo <laughs> Larry was dead you know what I mean I just wanted to go and what a you know stunning so we've got an interview coming up where I interview Larry and Dylan who is going to be the host with me on this kind of podcast and actually if you go over there now Josh has been busy 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 bloodandchromepodcast.com you can sign up there and hopefully soon we'll get a, a like a brand new show where we talk about blood and chrome which is actually going to be a spin-off from the Battlestar Galactica series so it's not out yet <laughs> starting early but it'll just be you know like gossip and everything like that and a bit of news and a bit of fact and a bit of discussion and it's actually a chance for me again just to you know exactly like what I did with Kieran where we can just have a bit chat and a bit laugh it's the same with Dullin it's just we can do this and just have a you know and just talk about what we like in kind of the TV and obviously we're going to you know we'll be flicking all over the place and talking about other TV shows as well you know because you've got 
I've just been talking to Dylan about the Game of Thrones, which is coming out as well. You know, that's a, a TV show that's, you know, hopefully will be fantastic. But anyway, there's an interview coming up with that, with, with Larry as well. And next up is, the, we've got a little fact article, or a fiction crawler, by Matthew Sanborn-Smith. Next up is our main fiction, and it is a Nebula-nominated story. It is by Christopher Caston-Smith, and please listen out for this, and great narration as well by Jonathan Danz. It's one of those stories that, honestly, just go somewhere quiet, just put your headphones on, just listen to the story, and just get lost in this world. It's fantastic. Then up is our good friend Fred Heimball with Graphic Fan. He delivers another one of those. Then we have part four of How to Run a Con by Michael Swanick. That is today's show. So first up is a little interview we did with myself and Dolan, Dolan Williams, who is going to be the the co-host of Blood and Chrome and Larry Santuro. So now the the kind of the cat is out of the bag. There, I've been playing these little trailers, blood and chrome trailers, and it's been nice to like give nothing away, really. Do you know what I mean? Just put them on the on the beginning of the show and say nothing. Well, now you know, Larry went out in a hail of bullets, so I can now kind of re- tell you what's going on. Say hello to everyone and talk about blood and chrome. What is then, Dylan? What is blood and chrome? Well, it's the the next in the line of the Battlestar Galactica series. So we've had the reimagining of Battlestar Galactica over the last ten years or so. Um, then we they gave us a prequel, which was Caprica, um, which was set about I suppose about forty years before. It was the the beginnings of the Cylons. Um, now this one is set again. It's a kind of prequel, but it's uh, what well, Commander Adama. Uh, taking part in the original beginning of the Cylon War, which is set about, I think it's about 30, 40 years before the, you know, before the main Battlestar Galactica series. So it's going to be following him as a rookie pilot, basically, when he starts his career on Battlestar Galactica. So, both me and Dylan are like kind of big fans in the kind of Battlestar Galactica, and it's like, say, we're doing this podcast basically just to, you know, like, I guess how you could say me and Kieran used to we used to chat about what we used to like. Well, you know, it's it's kind of the same thing. We're just going to really go and sometimes go a little bit in depth with Battlestar Galactica, with everything Blood and Chrome. Talk about you know, and and obviously have little kind of shoot offs, and then we we'll talk about other TV programs that we're doing as you know, what we're watching as well. But it's mainly going to be all about Blood and Chrome. But it's waiting in the wings there we, we killed them off in a hail of bullets we have Larry Santoro Larry yes yes hello <laughs> here I am just sitting in the green room in, in Chicago uh, hi hello now, you know what was, I was Larry actually doesn't really know because all I've been doing is sending them words over to Larry and Larry hasn't really had a clue what you know I've just kind of wrote out those words and a bit of kind of description to like to go with it and so Larry doesn't know what blood and chrome was he doesn't <laughs> but he just no. in the end you know being Larry we well, had to kill you off and I knew though that was always going to happen you know so I, I, yeah you had told me at one point somewhere along the line when I kept saying to you what is this uh, then you would say well don't worry because we're going to kill you off soon so uh, so there it was 
Well, Larry, because you've you've told me once before, but honestly, tell the story of how you've because you, I haven't even got a name for this guy, but you know the way you kind of the conditions you got into to, to record him. Oh well, mostly uh, except for the last one. Mostly, I, I, I because I didn't really know what was going on. Uh, I I just had to deal with this as a guy who was in under some stress, and I I kind of had to figure out. Okay, this guy is obviously some schlub like myself who sits behind a desk most of the time and types and doesn't do anything exciting or adventuresome and suddenly he's finding himself in the middle of a crisis and so basically it was me looking at the world falling apart which is kind of a day-to-day event these days uh as we all look at Japan right now and look at politics in the United States, etc., etc. Anyway, uh, so I would then take my the, the writer part of me and say, okay, this is a little overwritten. And try to figure out, okay, this guy, this this particular one, this guy is crouching in his, you know, he's in his office or someplace, and he's got a link to the outside world, and he's okay, let's get this out to you. Let's get this out. This is what's going on. This is what's going on. So it had to be kind of internal and quiet. The last one, which I think is the one that you're talking about and most interested in, uh, is obviously, the guy is under siege. Uh, He has just killed a critter, uh, a Cylon, with his bare hands. And this this is a bureaucratic schlub who has spent most of his life working in an an office doing a bureaucratic thing and suddenly he's come face to face with the enemy and he's killed it with a number four screwdriver that he's used to use hanging shelves in his office or someplace. Anyway uh, to do this and because I did actually I I made a choice literally to record this last and I guess it runs about seven minutes uh, this last little outcry from an outpost that's being overrun, which is essentially what it is. Uh, I made the choice to do do it in my office. And ra- and I have my own office building within my... Uh, my own little office within the office. And uh, rather than disturb my neighbors by shrieking at the top of my lungs and so forth and my other co-workers, I, I work at City Hall in Chicago, uh, so screaming is not unusual there, but nevertheless, I, I literally got under my desk and put my coat and sweater and other things on top of me, and in my head I was seeing a kind of destroyed world outside me. Uh, you've seen it in movies where there's been a gunfight inside a building, and fluorescent light tubes are hanging down and wires are shorting out and water is dripping perhaps and uh, there may be distant sounds but mainly right now this guy at this moment is stuck he's under, he's, he's hiding and that's where I did it, I, mean, I literally crawled under my desk and did the recording using, actually the microphone I'm using now, it's just a mic in a headset and uh, I think I did three takes of it and did it in different conditions. The last one, I, the last part of it, the actual gunfight, I, I did at home where I could actually shriek at the top of my lungs and had a moment where I could uh, 
literally take the headset and throw it down and record that final blast about five feet away from the, the microphone so that it sounded like he was off somewhere blowing things away and, and himself getting blown away and I guess blown up at the end. Uh, but all of this was just me looking at uh, kind of old movies I've seen of guys in this kind of situation and trying to kind of picture that. So shut up, Larry. D- d- <laughs> Dylan, you've actually listened to the full thing. I've Because we're recording this before. Obviously, this show is going out, you know, recorded and we're recording this a little bit earlier. I have sent you this one, haven't I, Dylan? You have, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. It's about 10 minutes long. So uh, it is like a little mini story by itself. Um, and as, as Larry was describing that then about hiding under his desk at work, I had to mute my microphone because I was just laughing too much. <laughs> <laughs> you know I can what? picture you climbing <laughs> underneath your desk and, you know, like co-workers thinking they could hear something strange in the background. So as long as you didn't assault any of them, that's OK. You know what I find would be good as well? You know, it's just like Larry's wife to Celia, you know... Lawrence, Lawrence, yes, are, are you all yes. right in there? Are you all right in yeah, there? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's it. I I I chose to do that last thing while she was out of the house. She went off to buy some clothing, and I said, "Okay, bye, dear." And I I locked the door. I came back, and I got this thing out. The last, the last two and a half minutes of it, uh, shrieking at the top of my lungs. I think the cats were afraid of me, and uh, I. It was, it was great fun. I don't get to do that scene. I was going to ask. That's another question. I was going to. This will be the first time probably that you've been. You know, gone out in a hail of bullets. I saw all these World War Two movies when I was a kid. You know, <laughs> of guys with with their with their Thompsons and their uh, their Sten guns and 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 the the Japanese are coming over the hill and and they're shouting and throwing hand grenades and uh, and then actually. Actually, the night before I did it, this is weird, I rented the movie uh, Restrepo, which is a documentary film about a group of U.S. Army personnel in Afghanistan uh, on a little outpost way up in the boonies of Afghanistan in a remote outpost where they're, they're hit maybe two, three times a day by gunfire from the mountains all around them. And it contains a number of, of actual firefights the difference is that these guys, of course, are professionals, you know, and they're used to it, yet still bullets flying around you, uh, life and death on the line. Uh, there's something of a kinship between the professional and this guy who has never been in this situation before. Uh, the guys, the real guys, they're calm about it. They trust each other. They know their weapons. They know what the enemy has, uh, and this guy doesn't. But there, there was something I took from them that I could bring to that, uh, and uh, it was really it was in, it was interesting. Uh, it was an interesting experience doing that. As I say, I've uh, I haven't acted as such in years. Uh, if, if discounting the narrations I do for you and the, the reading of my own material. <clears throat> when I'm out on a book tour or something, uh, I don't consider that acting as such. Uh, I guess it got, it's got elements of performance in it, of course, but uh, but it's been a long time since I've actually felt like an actor where well, I'm honestly, doing a play. Larry, it was, do you know what I mean? That I've played it so many times now to myself because just 
you know what I mean, over and over again, I just thought it was stunning. So honestly, thank you for taking part, not oh, knowing sure. what the hell you were doing. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a that was a great job. Did you did you not know it was Battlestar Galactica then? Well, yes, I did. I mean, I I, I know I, I know the Cylons, and I watched the the recent re- the, the recent iteration of, of of Battlestar Galactica. I I was around as an adult during the time the original played with Lauren Green and those guys. And I, frankly, I did not like it very much. I, I, I really didn't like it. Then I heard it was coming back, that the sci-fi channel, I guess it was, was doing it. And I watched one episode and I thought, oh, yeah, well, this, this, is, this, is, this is different. This is good. I like this. And then I, I can't bring myself to watch television. So I saw all of Battlestar Galactica maybe a year after everybody else did and I, I get DVDs and I, I watched it all on DVD uh, and I really quite like that. Caprica, not so much. Uh, my wife quite liked Caprica and I just thought this is more of a soap opera uh, with with robots and I you know, I just sort of tuned out after about two episodes but she quite liked it and I, I probably will watch it eventually. And But I knew nothing of, of this, the new series, uh, which I guess covers that middle year, the middle the, it covers the first Cylon War, I'm, I, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Well, if, yeah. if you imagine... But that's about all I knew. Um, if you imagine, for Blood and Chrome, what I've read, um, what they're aiming for is for that kind of first season or first two seasons of Battlestar Galactica when it was um, a kind of um, gritty military drama, I guess, in a certain sense, yeah. wasn't it? Before they went off off with the, the stories and, um, and off following the Cylon. So they're aiming for that. Um, the guys the guys that are in charge of it, um, one of them, uh, is it Michael Taylor, I think, who was a producer on the original Battlestar and well, the remake of Battlestar. The and re- he the was in, redo, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he was in Caprica as well, but it's, it's quite interesting looking into him, because he's, he's written a lot of um, Star Trek as well, including some a couple of the episodes he wrote for Deep Space Nine were amongst the most popular episodes ever done of Star Trek, apparently. So, Which, what's the guy's name? Uh, Michael Taylor, I think Michael it is. Uh, let's have a look now. I think I've got it here now. Yeah, um, yeah, Michael Taylor. Uh, okay. so he's been around for a, a few years. He did a lot. He did. He did different Star Treks as well. He did Voyager and things. But the few he did for Deep Space Nine, which is probably my favourite Star Trek series, was. Um, are among some of the most popular ones, so I think I'm going to go back and watch them again. Dylan, do you think you know with this, you know, battle, when Battlestar Galactica came out, do you think that was a bit of a game changer in the way things were presented? Because you sent over the kind of his like his Bible or his kind of his plan he wrote up to to produce Battlestar Galactica. Is Ron Moore? Is that I forgot the right name? There? Yeah, that's him. Yeah, you know, you sent over that battle kind of the, the the plan, and it was all laid out. You know, it was going to be totally character driven you know stories or everything you know and it's going to be all gritty do you think everything that's come since then has kind of been looking towards that you know I'm, I'm especially thinking about say Stargate Universe that was just total character and I'm actually disappointed that one went off you know I, quite, I was quite harking to yeah. that one no I think I, I think looking back at it now Battlestar kind of I didn't watch it when it first came out I think it was in the third season when I finally watched some episodes and thought oh hang on this is really good um, the, the adverts when I first saw the adverts for it on TV it just looked like a bit of a you know oh here's some computerized special effects Cylons that look a bit uh, and you know 
I didn't didn't really the adverse didn't portray the you know the kind of developing storyline the grittiness of it. So in that sense, it's a little bit like I I think it's a little bit like Sopranos maybe in in normal drama that Sopranos came out and kind of changed the field a little bit for having you know instead of having one hour episodes that were that were separate and distinct they kind of carried on the storyline through the whole through the whole season. And I think Battlestar's done that a little bit for sci-fi although. Although since Battlestar, I think sci-fi is struggling a little bit on TV at the moment, isn't it? So hopefully Blood and Chrome will, will kick-start it a bit again. You know, I'll tell you what I've been... And I don't know, Larry, I don't know if you've read the book, you know, the, the Game of Thrones, Thrones, you know, the George R. R. Martin one. That's I've not read it, I know of it, and I know it's coming on, and I'm very much looking forward to it. It looks interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, and that's, I've just been I kind watching... Of like, I kind of like high fantasy, uh, uh, epic fantasy... Uh, it's not something I've ever felt compelled to write myself, but I, I, I kind of like sometimes reading it if it's well done, and I, this looks interesting. So, well, I'm like you say, I've, I've seen that you know like the previews of it, and I think that's going to be exactly the same as kind of battles, you know, total character-driven, you know, I guess because like you say, I've yeah. read that story or listened to it, should I say, that again is going to be on the, you know, it has got that that book has got that format, so you can delve into the characters. Again, that's that's um, that's HBO, isn't it? Producing that. Yes. Who, yes. You know, yes. they 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 are famous for this kind of drama, aren't they? Uh, if yeah. only we can get HBO to make a sci-fi show, that would be good. Uh, I'm thinking it 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 occurs to me they have, but I and I but I'm no, I'm blacking. I'm no, blacking. I'm thinking of HBO, yeah. and they've got the HBO is The Sopranos, and um, what was it, The Wire. Well, uh, AMC now has done. Uh, that's another American cable uh, sta- uh, 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 provider. Uh, AMC did uh, Walk- The Walking Dead, which is some of the best zombie uh, material I've seen in in years. Yeah, I have, I've Part seen some of that actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's uh, they have done a few things. They have done a few science fiction. Can't stand things. zombies, by the way. In here, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a big fan of zombies. Uh, when asked to write a zombie story, I wrote one in which the word zombie was never mentioned, and you'd have to really think about it hard as you're reading it to realize it's zombies. But there it was. It'll be coming out soon in my new collection, Drink for the Thirst to Zombies. <laughs> Look at him, he's, he's a dog, and he can get his little plug oh. in there. We're talking about Battlestar Galactica. Uh, Battlestar what? Who, who? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, Dylan, wh- why, why then? Because I haven't watched all of Caprica, and that... I would probably say sixty percent, fifty-five, sixty percent going towards it. What you could, and yeah. now I know you loved it in the end. I, I, I really liked it. I, I would sit there and relax on the sofa, um, maybe have a bottle of beer and and watch the episodes. And I do like some. I, I do like some books and TV series where not a, not a terrible amount happens, but. You just kind of enjoy the ride, you know. Like I, I quite like the acting in there, um, and not a great deal happened, um, but I, I thought they were, you know, the characters were quite good, um, and I was, yeah, I was absolutely gutted when they when they cancelled it. So I won't give any spoilers. I won't tell you what happened, but um, Do you know, no, don't but, because no. I expect to watch it eventually. I, I mean, it is something I probably will like once I get into it. Uh, but as I say, I, I really have a difficult time watching anything live on television where I'm pinned down to uh, a specific 
date and time, uh, or especially if they have commercials. I, I cannot abide commercials. So I will probably eventually get Caprica on DVD and learn to love it. Uh, because I like character-driven, too. It's it's my thing. It's uh, Everything I write is character-driven rather than plot-driven. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, because I know, I know when I it comes to... I will probably like it, and will probably, as you say, feel down and disappointed at the end when I realized, oh, that's it, there's no more? Ah, well, those idiots. Yeah, well, a, a lot of the fans of Caprica were quite bitter towards sci-fi, um, and were, you know, and especially considering sci-fi are, are bringing out Blood and Chrome as well, they're like, well, what are you doing, cancelling these great shows? You know, um, and then well, starting the show. Yeah, the sci-fi channel being a uh, one that's that's more commercial driven. I mean, they they have commercials and they are more sponsor uh, driven. Has to produce something that's going to get good reviews or, or good good audiences. Whereas HBO, Showtime, those things that are outside of the what we call basic cable, uh, they can they can drift. They can do a little better because they're not dependent on sponsorship so much. Uh, the thing about uh, Caprica, I think it probably lost a lot of audiences because it probably lost a lot of the male crowd because it did it wasn't the same as Battlestar Galactica no. where you A, had, had hot sweaty babes doing really manly things and looking really good while doing it like the, the, the very sexy toaster, whatever her name was, number six I think, uh, the blonde and then uh, uh, Apollo, who, who, who was who was the the, the blonde pilot uh, in yeah, Star Apollo, Trek? wasn't it? Yeah, uh, was a Starbucks, Starbucks, Star, Starbucks. Sorry, Star, yeah, of course, Starbucks. Yeah. Katie Sackhoff, uh, I think the name. Yeah, is. yeah. Oh, yum, yum. Uh, anyway, shut up. She, uh, <laughs> no, you no, can be seeing that. <laughs> I, want some, I want some in-depth views from it. Not like, yeah. oh, she was nice. Yep, <laughs> thing is, I get. Uh, but no, I think that. That drew a big male audience because there was action, there was some sex, there was interest, you know, that did that. But Caprica was much more of a of a of a a drama, a kitchen sink yeah. drama. Uh, That's true. Um, and when, I, you which know... I love, which I love, but I I will not. I mean, and I, as I say, I'll probably watch the DVDs and say, oh. You fools! You fools for killing that. Uh. <laughs> well, I, I, I've got an admission to make though. When they first announced Caprica, when I first heard about Caprica, and they said what it was going to be about the Grace, the, the, you know, the, the Grace Stoke family mm. and the um, uh, and the, uh, the Adamas, yeah, yeah, that's it. And when they first explained what it was going to be about, the families and the, you know, the how they first met each other and how the this all started off. I thought it sounded really dull and quite boring. Um, and I thought, I'm not going to watch that at all. But when I watched it, once I'd watched a couple of episodes, the pilot, okay. another episode, that was enough to get me hooked. Because, yeah, it was it, completely different, really, to Battlestar. Um, well, my wife tells me I left watching the series just about the time it really took off and started getting interesting. I saw the first, I saw the pilot, and I may have seen one more episode, and then she said, it, it's it's really getting good, you should watch it, and I said, no, eventually I will. Yeah, so, <laughs> Dylan, you know what, we, we're doing this podcast on Blood and Chrome, but you, and I'm kind of putting a nail in the coffin already, has the 
the horse not bolted the stable you know they've they've had the good one they've had Battlestar Galactica are they now not kind of just grabbing at straws and thinking right let's let's try another one you know that Caprica didn't work should we try another one or do you think well um, no I mean this was announced actually Blood and Chrome was announced um, before I think possibly well before Caprica was cancelled it was it was announced probably a year and a half ago it's been in planning for quite a while so but I, I think I think with with Blood and Chrome, they're trying to get back to what they had in that first season of, of yeah. Battlestar, um, which was, and, I, and I've gone back, I t- I've told Tony, I've gone back and I've watched about the first sort of seven, eight, seven, eight um, programs in the series, the first series, and I've forgotten how much I enjoyed it. It is kind of gritty military drama about the characters and what they're going through, um, and they're basically using a science fiction setting for it. And I think with Blood and Chrome, they're going to go back to that. But they're going to throw in some more special effects and some more fighting to keep, you know, the uh, to keep that the uh, the fans of that happy. Well, you know, it's sort of like the uh, Star Star Wars uh, cycle, uh, where you begin with the final the final chapters, and then years later you go back and do the beginning. Yeah, Hello? let's let's yeah. Ho- let's hope let's um yeah let's hope they do a better job. <laughs> yeah, I hope that's what I think. <laughs> Star Wars. Yeah, that was my point in saying that. I, I hope uh, I hope they do a better job because uh, Battlestar Galactica, as it exists now, begins with a whole mass of questions, especially for a person who saw the original series and knew what that was all about, and then comes to this and Cylon suddenly look like humans uh, and you're just like what? what's going on? what happened? oh this is after the ah I get it okay that but but not quite it's not quite the same so anyway I, I, I will be very much looking forward to, to, to seeing this series and seeing how they can go from a beginning point and reach the point where we pick up with the Battlestar Galactica season one that we have now uh, yeah, quite you know, I mean, I will, we'll wrap it up in a second or two. Because, we'll, we'll, and if you want to hear more of these kind of discussions, this is where you'll go on to blood and chrome. But yeah, I was just with Battlestar Galactica, and this is to both of you, you know. So please, one of you answer, and then the next. But you had, you always had tension. Would it, you know, because uh-huh. you had this overall arc of a story where these silence were just coming every time they were coming, where. We didn't know the outcome. You know, we, we do now because, you know, like I say, the last one, <laughs> don't talk about the last couple of shows on Battlestar yeah. Galactica. But we didn't know the outcome. We didn't know if they were going to find this, you know, this place where we kind of now already know the outcome, basically, you know, because we know what, where Adama goes and everything like that. So where's that tension going to come from? Well, it'll come from the, in the, 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 the drama of the moment. I mean, that's where that's where theater always lives I mean always know that Hamlet is going to die in the end but you watch it seeing how they will work it out how they'll get from the death of the the king to the death of the king uh, it's it's like all of Shakespeare is that you 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 always know what's going to happen at the end. You just don't know how quite it's going but to get di- there. We didn't know that with Battlestar Galactica, and I think that was one of the. Uh, well, was... you know, the thing is, I think I did. I, I I'll tell you honestly, I knew the end of Battlestar Galactica when I saw the first episode of the first <laughs> Battlestar Galactica. <coughs> I said to myself, "Oh, I know what's going to happen." 
and said that's what's going to happen and 30 years later <laughs> that's how it ended so uh, anyway that's only because I'm extraordinarily bright and know how writers think so shut up Larry shut up no, but I, uh, and I, I, would, I would say as well I think, I think possibly dramas have had those dramas have had their day now the ones where they kind of drip feed you a bit of information and they leave you they give you a new puzzle and then they'll you know they'll answer a question but give sure. you a new puzzle you know they they were answering basically they were answering que they were answering questions with new questions and it's a little bit like lost where you know it was Absolutely. it was getting yeah. it was getting people addicted it was you know it was giving them a little bit of heroin just to get them in you know each time to get them to come back all the time and I, I eventually there were things like with lost for example i got fed up of that because you just you realized what they were doing and you just got fed up and you say <laughs> yes yes in fact um the fi I, yeah. I went back and watched the final season i actually watched the first few episodes and then just skipped it out and watched the final episode and i didn't miss a thing so um yeah. i think i think with battlestar when it got to the end a lot of people were disappointed because they didn't tie everything up and answer all the questions because they didn't know the answers they were it, the reality was they were making it up as they went along um, yeah. So, and I think now with with Blood and Chrome, I, I think because we know what the ending is going to be, they can concentrate purely on making sure it's as good a drama and entertaining as it can be. I think. Well, you know, each story, even if your the entirety of your series has a beginning point and an already known endpoint, each episode that you deal with has to have its own story arc and its own built intentions. And it all has to contribute to a longer arc. Uh, and so if you manage to keep those inner internal arcs alive and fresh, character-driven and, and meaningful, then I think you could have a very good series. I, you know, I've, I've had some experience. I used to write for a, a TV series here in the States, and I started off as story supervisor. So I kind of know how we build things. I, I wrote the Bible for a show, a series here in the uh, in the states called Hide and Seek, uh, back oh, 15, 16 years ago, more than that, tw almost twenty years ago. Uh, and you know, it's just a matter of looking. You, you may not know exactly where the where it's going to end, but you have to kind of have a knowledge of where the arc, the whole arc is. Uh, so anyway. It, well, as long we'll, as each episode contains its own tensions, its own conflicts, its own resolutions, and yet its own open ends that let you move on to the next portion of the overall arc, you've got a good show. Uh, so. Well, we will hopefully, hopefully, that'll that'll be the case. If you want to listen to. Blood and Chrome. Pa Dylan, I'm just looking at our calendar. Our first one is supposed to come out on the 20th of this month. So <laughs> Josh has been busily putting the website together. So we have got the URL, bloodandchromepodcast.com. Go over there. You can sign the, the kind of subscription there to get into iTunes and everything like that is there. We're not going to have a forum or anything like that just yet. We're going to put up just really like comments on the actual website. So if you want to, you know, please drop our emails and everything like that. We've got... Tony, may I ask a quick question you, before we uh, Larry, break you off? Can. When when does uh, the new series begin? Do you uh, does any have they announced? Dylan, uh, you're, you're well. Um, they've all they've done so far is they've made the pilot, so they've finished filming the pilot in February. Uh -huh. um, but 
I, the only thing I've heard is possibly October for the for the airing of that, which okay. seems like quite a long time just to produce the one. Well, um, if you look, well, that's on, the start of look, the new season. Uh, that American television tends to start September, October. That's where the seasons tend to begin. Right, so. but I, I mean, I think I think it's only the pilot they're they're doing at the yeah. moment. So even well, after that's the how pilot, they did Battlestar Galactica too. They began with, course, yeah, with yeah. a two-hour pilot, and then they saw how that went, and then they went with the rest of the season. Well, I'm sure I looked on, now I don't know if it was for Caprica or for Battlestar Galactica, but they had the pilot out, and then it was only, like, say, two weeks later that they kicked yeah. off with the main shows. You know, so if that pilot's a success, I think they'll probably, they'll, they might have some already done, and then they'll carry it on. Yeah. Who knows? But Yeah, they may have them in the can already, and uh, uh, I don't know. This is going to be the Sci-Fi Channel again, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So if you want to come and listen, we're going to have news on there. We're going to obviously going to dig into some gossip, and then once the, you know, if the the shows do kind of carry on, we're going to delve into them as well. So there you go, Blood and Chrome Podcast dot com. Excellent, Dylan. Thank you very much, Larry. Thank you very much. And You're thank welcome, you. It's there in iTunes. You can subscribe come over to the site hopefully Josh will put a little link on the top of the front of the Starship sofa as well at the top of the tabs page and that'll be sorted and we'll you know you can subscribe anyway I guess so do listen out for that our first we you know we've planned to get the first show out on Sunday let's hope <laughs> Sanborn Smith. Hello, sofa notaries. This is the freshly soaked and shiny Matthew Sanborn Smith with a short but special one just for you. And although that's not the first time I've said those words, it is the first time I've used them in reference to the fiction crawler. Instead of my usual baker's dozen minus seven of stories, I am coming to your ears today with one, count them one, well, maybe that makes two, or eleven, story. Why do I come out of self-imposed semi-quasi-retirement that I never mentioned to anyone in the first place? Because those of you who are able to nominate for the Hugos only have about a week and a half left to do so, and before the window closes, you need to read this story. And if you aren't eligible to nominate, you too need to read this story just because it's so damned good. The story is called Blood Blood, and it's by Abby Mayotis, and it's over at the always impressive Strange Horizons, and it's also the best story I've read in the last couple of long times, and I just couldn't keep my mouth shut, and tell your fifth grade teacher that plenty of us in the real world adore run-on sentences and delight in using them at every opportunity. Blood Blood tells the story of 16-year-old Damia and her boy-man companion George as they navigate a modern America that has been culturally bent by the arrival of vastly superior aliens who seem to be here just hanging out. These are aliens without physical form who will parcel out a bit of super technology here and a few bucks there so long as they get to watch us doing exciting things with our bodies, like put on our socks and eat fries. Seriously. And maybe beat each other's heads in. You feel the pain here of people knocked out of their lifelong orbits forever by the weirdness that has settled in on Earth. Some feel trapped by it. Others have felt trapped since before it ever happened. You feel the pain of a young woman stuck in a body she hates, and the pain of every kick and scrape and fist in your face. Blood Blood is a science fiction fight club that's violent and visceral and shakes you out of all the crap that you've been reading lately and makes you say, Oh yeah, the field can do this every now and then. 
You may recall that I sang the praises of Paolo Bacigalupi's Yellow Card Man last time we tangoed. I read that years ago and haven't felt so passionate about another story until now. The first rule of Blood Blood is you do talk about Blood Blood. The second rule of Blood Blood is you do tell all your science fiction loving and Hugo nominating pals about Blood Blood. The linky dinks in the show notes. Dig it, baby. Eat it up, swallow it, it's good for you. Short and sour, as I promised. Until next time, boys and boys and girls and girls. Did I get everyone? And girls. This here is Matthew Sanborn Smith crawling out of your head for another little while to get a bit of air and maybe read something great from when I want to crawl back in. My apologies for stretching out your ear holes like that, but it doesn't look too bad on you. Good night. There you go, Matt. You know, I could just cuddle Matt until I make him cry. That's the, that's the best way I can describe, you know, Matt Sanborns with. I just want to cuddle him and cuddle him and cuddle him and make him till he cries. Tony, you hurt, Tony, you hurt us. You know, we're separated by oceans and miles and miles around. You know, if there's ever a time when virtual world becomes your kind of reality, I'm knocking on that guy's door and giving him a virtual hug. Next up is Main Fiction and Spy Christopher Caston Smith. The story's up for a Nebula Award this year, and it was our good friend Larry Santuro that kind of pointed me in the right direction. So I'll put a link on to Christopher's site. It is narrated by Jonathan Dans. Jonathan says he is a writer of speculative fiction living in West Virginia. When not narrating, he is writing, reading, and hanging out with his family. He even holds down a paying job. Visit them at jonathandans.com. And I will, again, I'll put a link on to Jonathan's site. This is a great narration as well. This is Jonathan, I think this is Jonathan's first time narrating. And, Jonathan, you're going to get a few stories off of me. <laughs> you certainly are, sir. So, Starship Sofa is very proud to present... The Fortuitous Meeting of Gerard Van Oost and Oludara. By Christopher Kastensmith. High atop the Church of the Immaculate Conception, in contrast to the subdued hues of the building's unpainted mortar and stone, a scarlet macaw perched upon a wooden cross. The macaw cocked its head from side to side, watching people move through Salvador's principal plaza. After a few minutes, it paused to stretch out its wings, presenting its full array of colors scarlet, gold, sapphire, chalk, amber, and coal, a combination found nowhere else in nature. The flash of color caught Gerard's eye. He looked up and examined the macaw. The exotic bird symbolized everything which had brought him to this strange new world. Beauty, mystery, and magic. All thoughts of returning to Europe faded before the bird's gorgeous display. Certainly that one sight alone, unknown to most European eyes, was in itself worth braving the six-week journey across the Atlantic. When the bird took flight, disappearing beyond the city's northern wall, Gerard returned his focus to the plaza. Out of habit, he tugged the bottom of his linen doublet, fitting it snugly around his broad chest. Then he stroked his palm-length goatee with his right hand, and tapped the pommel of his Balinese rapier with his left as he considered the problem at hand. He had come to Brazil under the assumption that anyone courageous enough to make the trip could earn a spot in one of the adventuring troops. But unfortunately, that had not been the case. Antonio Diaz Caldas, the most renowned adventurer in the province, had firmly declined Gerard's services and so far no other group had stepped forward to explore the local wilds. Gerard could potentially raise his own standard, but he would need a strong team, and he hadn't met anyone in Salvador with whom he would trust his life. His thoughts were interrupted as the Portuguese merchant Pero de Bellum walked by, leading a coffle of African slaves. 
Perot tipped his wide-brimmed hat as he passed, and Gerard responded in kind. The slaves followed one by one, heads held low, the chains joining their neck collars swaying between them. Their only clothing consisted of one-piece cotton tunics, which hung to their knees. The line came to an abrupt halt when one of the local mill owners stopped Perot to have a word with him. Gerard noticed that the nearest slave did not bend like the others. He stood completely erect. Already a few inches taller than average, his posture made him tower above the rest. His bulging muscles stood out, even through the unfitted tunic. The man exuded power and grace, and his eyes held a certain deepness. His wide nostrils and high cheekbones only heightened the effect. Gerard could only think of one word to describe the man. Magnificent. He lamented the fact that men were taken from their homeland in chains. Gerard grimaced as the depressing sight cast a shadow over the idyllic image he had formed just moments before. And so, even in paradise there are slaves, he said. The slave turned toward him but did not make a sound. Gerard looked away, embarrassed, wondering if the man might have understood his remark. Trumpets sounded from the north gate, drawing away his attention. Shouts erupted from all around the plaza as Antonio Diaz Caldas strode through the gate with a native carrying his gold and red standard close by his side. Behind him followed his band. Gerard counted forty in all, many less than had started the mission a few weeks before. Without breaking stride, Antonio crossed the plaza to the governor's palace. The rest of his men dispersed in the square, each one quickly surrounded by curious bystanders. Diogo, one of Antonio's men whom Gerard held in high esteem, passed nearby. Diogo, asked Gerard, what happened? We killed the boy Tata. The serpent that's been attacking the farmers? Tell me more. We've heard only rumors here. It was truly a marvelous creature. During the day it hid in lakes and rivers, so we had to hunt it at night. It took days to corner it, but when we finally did, we discovered a serpent large beyond belief. As wide as a cart, and long as a mainmast, I swear. Its body blazed with a magical blue flame, which burned beast but not bush, and which no water could douse. The flame made the beast appear blue, but when we cast light upon it, its scale shone with all the colors of the rainbow. Its eyes were giant balls of fire, Diogo continued, each the size of a skull. Two of our companions, Afonso and Paolo, made the mistake of looking the beast in the eye. Both of them went mad. The Boitata burned and struck as we fought it, killing everything it touched, but that is all I can tell for now. Antonio will want to tell the details of the victory himself, after he collects the governor's reward. And the recognition. Gerard practically sighed as he said it. Then he asked, It appears you lost some men. Yes, we lost ten during our encounter with the beast. Then I suppose you'll be looking to fill your ranks? Diogo frowned without responding. Diogo, Gerard continued, you know I want to serve under a standard more than anything. I didn't spend six weeks cramped in a caravel just to visit a mortar and bamboo village. I came here for adventure. I have the strength of a bear and I'm one of the best harkbus shots you'll ever meet. I know Antonio respects you. Please, help me. I don't know if there's anything I can do, Gerard. We still have twenty harkbusiers, more than enough for anything left roaming these parts. But your biggest problem is that Antonio isn't fond of Protestants. I'm not going to convert to Catholicism just to join your band. And it wouldn't help, came a voice to his right. I'm not fond of converts either. Gerard turned to see Antonio approaching, his chest jutting forward under his rich blue doublet, and his black beard cropped close around his long chin. Go back to Europe, Gerard, said Antonio. You're not wanted here. I formally requested that Governor Almeida have you arrested for vagrancy if you're not on the next ship out. Given his delight at my feet of the Boitata, 
I have every expectation my request be granted. I didn't know vagrancy was a crime in Brazil, Gerard replied through clenched teeth. It is if the governor says so. Gerard breathed deeply before responding. I'm willing to risk my life in your service, and you treat me this way? I don't need your help, Gerard. Then he paused. Although there could be a way. A man who can think on his feet is worth a dozen harquebusiers. Brazil is filled with all types of wily creatures, and many times a sharp wit is more useful than a sharp sword. If you can guess how we defeated the Boitata, I'll withdraw my request for your arrest and consider a place for you in my band. Gerard pulled on his goatee. Quick decisions were not his specialty, and being forced to make one muddled his thoughts. He wiped the sweat from his forehead. Time's up, said Antonio. Any ideas? Gerard had no idea how much time had passed. He'd worried the entire time, never managing to concentrate on the problem. <sighs> he said, I don't know. A serpent is best defeated through its stomach. All three men turned to see who had spoken. The African-accented Portuguese made the speaker undeniable. The voice had come from the nearby slave. How did you know that? shouted Antonio. I told the story to Governor Almeida just five minutes ago. Perro de Bellum came running. What is going on here? he yelled. Is this slave babbling something? He held his face close to the slaves and said, Booga booga! Actually, said Gerard, he appears to speak perfect Portuguese. Oh, right, Perro said, scratching his beard. That one. I can never tell them apart. He's the only one of these monkeys who speaks Portuguese, and he gave me a mouthful too much of it on the way over from Africa. Do not call us monkeys, said the slave. We are not animals. You who take men from their homelands and sell them like vegetables are the animals. But I comprehend your denial, Mr. Perro de Bellum, and I pity you. If you ever truly accept what it is you do, it will haunt you for the rest of your life. See what I mean? Perro said, holding up his hands. He turned his attention back to the slave. No one asked for your opinion, and one more word out of you will get you a lashing tonight. That won't be necessary, interrupted Gerard, not wanting to see any harm come to the man. He just responded to a question. He appears to be quite a remarkable man. Really, said Perro, squinting his eyes. Well, if you think he's so wonderful, I can sell him to you. He's supposed to be shipped down to Fernando Alvaro's sugar mill in Rio de Janeiro on Thursday. But if you give me forty thousand rays before then, I can settle something else with Fernando. <laughs> forty thousand? That price is absurd. What was it you called him again? Remarkable? Well, that just means you have to pay a remarkable price. I don't think Fernando is going to give him up once he lays his hands on him either. Five of his slaves were killed in Indian attacks last month, and he's eager to fill the ranks with fresh fodder. Perro turned back to the line and yelled, Move out! Antonio burst out laughing. See, Gerard, he said, you're not clever enough for an expedition like ours. Even a slave just arrived from Africa knows more than you. He walked off chuckling. Diogo placed a hand on Gerard's shoulder. I'm sorry, Gerard. Antonio's words are often unnecessarily brusque. Gerard watched the line of slaves moving away. Not at all, he replied. I think he may be right. Gerard sat patiently in Perro's office with a spoon, a glass of water, and a full plate of food on the table before him. To pass the time, he studied a painting of Belem, Perro's native city. He recognized the port from its unmistakable ornamented tower. He had passed it on the start of his voyage to Brazil. The quality of the painting did not match those he had seen in Italy and Flanders, yet still provided a reasonable representation of the port. 
Perro entered with the slave in tow. The slave stared at Gerard in silence, then took a long look at the plate on the table. Please, sit down, offered Gerard. The slave sat down on the other side of the table. Could you please leave us alone? asked Gerard, looking at Perro. I suppose it can't do any harm, but if anything happens to the property, he said, motioning toward the slave with a flick of his chin, you're responsible. Right before walking out the door, he looked back and said, Remember, forty thousand by Thursday, or he's on his way to Rio. Once Perro slammed the door, Gerard looked over to the slave and asked, What's your name? The slave studied him before responding. Their eyes made contact, and Gerard held his gaze without blinking. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The slave said, tell me yours first. All right. My name is Gerard Van Oost, 29 years of age. I'm Dutch, from the county of Flanders but I've spent so much time traveling in Europe that I haven't set foot in my homeland for years. Well, Gerard, you are the only white man who has ever asked me my name. I am Oludara. I hail from the kingdom of Ketu, which bears the misfortune of being located in a region you Europeans call the Slave Coast. By your calendar, I have lived for twenty-five years. After a pause, he continued, Why do you seek me? From what I heard of your conversation in the plaza, I understood that you are not a sugar mill owner. First, I'd like to offer you a gift. Gerard pushed the plate and spoon forward. Are you familiar with the local food? Only black beans and rice, which we receive only when we are lucky. Most days we eat cooked green bananas, which makes me think Mr. Perro de Bellum really does believe we are monkeys. Gerard didn't know whether the comment was said in bitterness or jest. After a short pause, he chanced to chuckle. Then Oludara smiled and they both laughed heartily. Yes, Gerard, even in a situation like mine, a man must keep his humor. My people say, do not lament spilled water. As long as the calabash is not broken, one can still get more. Times are dark for me, but my body and will are strong, and for this reason I do not despair. However, it is indeed difficult to live on bananas alone. Well, you may find this to your liking, Gerard pointed to each item in turn. The fish is grouper. It is denser than most other fish and mild on the tongue. This is roasted ipim. 
It comes from the ground like a potato, but is richer in flavor. The yellow bread is made from corn and mixed with a bit of coconut for sweetness. And these slices are from a fruit known as pineapple, regarded as one of the sweetest flavors in the world. It is so treasured by the Portuguese, they ship trees all the way to India to make sure the fruit is never far from their colonies. Oludara stared at the plate, but didn't make any move toward it. It is truly a feast, but no one offers a meal for free. Let me know what you seek before I accept your generosity. Tell me how you knew the answer to Antonio's question yesterday. Is that all? I would tell you the story if only for the courtesy you have shown, but I accept your offering, as I am so tired of bananas that my pride would not get in the way of any handout. Oludara ate his first spoonful of rice and beans, closing his eyes as he chewed it. After washing it down with a sip of water, he looked Gerard in the eye. Let me tell you a story. It happened five years ago in my homeland of Ketu. Between bites, he told his tale. Oludara stopped clearing the weeds and leaned against the hoe. The wrapper around his waist weighed heavy from the sweat which trickled down his bare chest. He could afford to rest. Three weeks remained before a yam planting, and the field appeared to be in good shape. He watched his two younger brothers working farther upfield. As he removed his straw hat to wipe sweat from his brow, he noticed movement to his left. Bale Akeju, master of the village, approached with another man. As they came closer, he saw that both wore fine indigo robes. Wearing such a rich robe was normal for a Bale, but not for anyone else he knew in the region. Oludara could not imagine what matter would make the Bale come out to his field. It would be much easier to find him in his hut that evening, after the day's work. They came straight to him without stopping, and he greeted both with a handshake. The stranger studied him carefully, but it was the Bale who spoke. Oludara, this man has come all the way from Ketu to speak with you. Are you Oludara? asked the man, the son of the one known as the Slayer of Monsters. I am Oludara, but my father passed away years ago. That fact is known to the Oba, for it was he himself who sent me with orders to escort you to Ketu. He wishes to have words with you. I am Oyewole, one of his personal messengers. Bale Akeju gasped at the news. Oludara frowned. For one such as I to be called before the Oba without warning cannot be good. You may be right, said Oyewole. I know not why he has sent for you, but from my experience a surprise summons from the Oba is rarely good news. I would not trade places with you right now. Nevertheless, we must leave immediately. The Oba does not like to be left waiting. Take time only to say goodbye to your family, and collect clothes for your audience. Very well, it shall be done. Even though Ketu was only a two-day walk, it might as well have been on the other side of the world for Oludara. He had only been to Ketu once before, as a child, when his father still lived. He had gone for one of the great festivals, and had seen the Oba in full royal attire. He did not remember many details, just the feeling of awe he had experienced upon visiting. The journey was well spent, as Oyewole told him much of the politics and history of Ketu. Oludara liked the man and imagined they could have been friends if Oyewole did not hold a rank in society so far above his. As they neared the city, they passed through a multitude of farms. They then navigated the complex system of bulwarks and moats, the innermost courtyard surrounded by walls twice the height of a man. The locals used different colors and fashions than those in Oludara's village. Massive squares full of wooden stands sat empty, waiting to be filled by crowds and merchandise on market day. Oyewole led him to a great house and asked him to prepare himself for his audience with the Oba. A young woman helped him draw a bath and he washed off the red dust accumulated during the trip. 
For his meeting with the Oba, he vested a short-sleeved robe and tied it around the waist with a sash. A close-fitting cap completed the ensemble. It was not elegant, but the best that could be expected from a poor farming family. Oyewole escorted him to the palace. The sight of the grandiose building, a towering clay construction, awed him. Two massive gates stood open in front. The guards, upon seeing Oyewole, motioned them through. Warriors guarded the hall inside and out. Most held swords or bows, but some were equipped with Portuguese crossbows. Oludara had heard of them, but never seen one before. As he walked the long hall, he glanced at the bronze heads on each side, representations of all past obas of Ketu. These were interspersed among fine ivory carvings. When he reached the end, he saw the obas council, seven chiefs sitting to one side on lion-skin mats. At the end of the hall stood several eunuchs, the personal servants of the oba, identifiable by the way they wore their robes bunched upon their shoulders. Drummers and other attendants waited at other locations around the hall. Oyewole shook Oludara's hand goodbye and motioned to a leopard-skin mat where Oludara knelt to wait. Two eunuchs carried a wooden stool to the front of the hall. Oludara could see elaborate carvings covering the stool, but could not make out the details from his vantage point. Shortly after, one of the attendants shouted, The great Oba Aremola enters! A great blast and drums accented his announcement. The Oba entered, flanked by two guards bearing halberds, topped with thick bronze blades. Oludara soaked in as much detail as possible in the few seconds that ceremony allowed. The Oba wore a coral collar and silk sash upon his chest. A crown of red beads came to a point above his head, and lines of beads cascaded down from it. Rings around his neck reached up to his mouth and, combined with the beads, left little of his face exposed. As the Oba approached the wooden stool, Oludara and all others in the hall prostrated themselves. After a few moments they returned to the kneeling position. Oludara kept his eyes pointed down in reverence, but longed to stare at the regality of his lord. You have been summoned because my diviners consulted the Ifa oracle. Oba Arimola spoke in an even voice, just loud enough for Oludara to hear every word clearly. They told me to seek the progeny of a man who aided me long ago. Oludara felt honored to hear the voice of the Oba. It was a rare privilege. In public, the Oba whispered through a cowtail whisk, and a eunuch called out his words to the people. Your father helped me once when I was young, continued the Oba. With his cunning skill, he killed Suyu, a terrible beast which ravaged the local villages. Now I face a similar problem, so I assume that you are the one I seek. Six months ago, he continued, a dragon stopped one of my sons on the road and demanded that a sacrifice, taken from among my vassals, be tied and left at the sacred grove of Ofru every full moon. When my son told me the news, I refused. When the sacrifice was not sent, the dragon went to an outlying farm and killed a family there. The next full moon I sent fifty warriors to slay the beast. Only a few survived, and they reported that not even the bolts of the Portuguese crossbow could penetrate the beast's scales. Since then, I have sacrificed one of my vassals each month to this creature. I would not continue doing so. After a pause, the Oba spoke again. I fear the beast cannot be beaten by force alone. Cunning is also required. I hear you have faced many trials, even at your young age. You battled our enemies from Dauma, and I hear that at the age of sixteen you tricked and slew the very beast which killed your father. The reminder sent a pang through Oludara, but he pushed it down. I regret sending such a fine man, continued the Oba, so recently turned to adulthood on such a terrible task. However, an Oba does not question, he does not ask, he orders. 
Thus I order you to do everything in your power to slay the beast. Do you understand? Yes, replied Oladara. It will be an honor to serve the great Oba Ademola. Very good. I am gladdened to see you here before me. You remind me of your father in both manner and build. I do not know if you came to know the depth of his wisdom. When he slew Suyu, I offered him anything in my power as a reward. He could have chosen riches, or land, or anything else which could have brought him temporal pleasure in this world, but he was too wise for that. Instead, he asked me to choose a name for his newborn son. At this the Oba laughed heartily. He knew the gift would cost me not the price of a yam, but that an Oba surely would choose a princely name. And thus I did. I chose the name Oludara for his son, and brought great honor to his family for all generations to come. I have no doubt he will stand by your side in the trial which awaits you. After a pause, the Oba asked, Do you remember the dagger your father wore? Yes. He carried that dagger because your name was not the only present I gave him. I could not leave such wisdom unrewarded, so I also gave him that dagger, one of the greatest treasures in all of Ketu. Since all ivory belongs to the Oba, your village elders rightfully returned it to me upon his death. However, the chiefs agree, he held a hand toward the seven counselors for emphasis, and they nodded in response, that it would make a fine present for you now, to help with what you must face. The Oba motioned with a wave, and a eunuch carrying a fine bronze tray appeared from behind him. The eunuch knelt before Oludara, holding out the tray and presenting the dagger which lay upon it. The dagger was exactly as Oludara remembered it. Fine ivory tinted red from palm oil. The hilt contained intricate carvings. The side with the lightning bolt rested on top. The sight flooded him with memories of his father, but he shook them off and reached down to accept the gift, not wanting to appear unappreciative. As Oludara touched the hilt, a strange sensation passed through his arm, causing him to jerk in surprise. The Oba saw his reaction and said, The enchantment on that dagger is strong. It is rumored to come from Shango himself. Whether or not that is true, not even I can say, but guard it well, because you will never again find its equal. Oludara grasped the hilt firmly and lifted the dagger. The eunuch with the tray walked away. The Iyakiri controls my treasury, said the Oba. She will see to it that you have whatever equipment you need. Great Oba, said Oludara, I must first see the beast if I am to try and defeat it. Of course. However, no one knows where it lives. You must go to Ofru on the next full moon, two days hence, and witness the sacrifice. Hide yourself as possible, for the beast is treacherous. May Olurun protect you. The Oba rose, and everyone prostrated again. Before the Oba even left the hall, Oludara's mind swirled with thoughts of the task before him. Oludara, his body camouflaged by red clay dust, lay behind one of the bushes in the sacred grove of Ofru. Some sixty paces before him lay the sacrifice, tied and gagged. He regretted he would not be able to save the man, but knew it would be foolish to face the beast without watching the sacrifice. His only concern was concealment. If the dragon caught a whiff of his scent, it would mean a quick end to his adventure. When the moon reached its zenith, the dragon appeared. It resembled a massive green snake except for some tiny, apparently useless wings and several stubby pairs of legs which it used to propel itself in a half-walking, half-slithering fashion. The scales appeared impenetrable, like painted iron plates stacked upon each other. The sacrificial victim, eyes wide, thrashed in his bonds and grunted muted screams through the gag. The dragon ignored him at first, flicking its tongue repeatedly to test the air around it. Completing its examination, it turned its full attention to the man. The moment they made eye contact, the man stiffened. Without ceremony, 
the dragon approached its victim, unhooked its jaw, and clasped down over his head. With the eye contact broken, the man resumed his thrashing, all the while slowly disappearing into the dragon's gullet. His movement stopped after a minute, when either his head was finally crushed or he ran out of air. Oludara could not tell which. Olurun, save us, whispered Oludara under his breath. Shortly after finishing its meal, the dragon looked around, flicked its tongue a few more times, and turned back in the direction from which it had come. Oludara waited half an hour, then crawled to the middle of the grove and found the tracks made by the dragon slithering. Using the stealth he had acquired while hunting the savannah with his brothers, he trailed the beast. He crawled for at least two hours before discovering the bedded dragon. It had coiled itself up near a tree. In the moonlight, Oludara could see a glint where one of the beast's eyes remained open. As he crawled away from the dragon, Oludara formed his plan. Two days later, Oludara found himself kneeling once again before the Oba Ademola. The Iakiri informs me that for some reason you require an elephant in order to slay the beast, began the Oba. I have but one, and he has been with me for many years. I am loath to part with him, but I told you I would give you anything in my power, so it shall be done. However, the Iakiri also informs me that there is something else you require, which could only be discussed in my presence. I am curious to hear this request. It is indeed something only you can provide, my lord, replied Oludara. I need you and the village chiefs to impart a nobleman's status upon the elephant. A commotion rose among the councillors. Outrageous, shouted the Oba. Our ancestors will laugh at such folly. However, replied Oludara, I must ask it. As it is said, a thief is more merciful than fire, and we must choose the lesser of these evils. In this case, one noble elephant can do what a thousand men cannot. I do not think our ancestors will mock us if we succeed in our task. If you will but let me explain, it will all become clear. Oludara sat in silence as the dragon entered the grove and gave a puzzled look at the bound elephant. It scanned around and caught sight of him. His stomach clenched as their eyes met. The dragon's gaze seemed to bore into him. The dragon slithered to within a few paces of him, never breaking eye contact. Its forked tongue flickered out, almost touching him. Oludara tried to hold himself calmly, but knew that his muscles would not respond even if he wanted. The dragon spoke in a hissing voice. Are you the Oba's sacrifice? Oludara struggled to begin his speech, but surprised himself when the words came out confidently. No, I am but a messenger. As you are such a marvelous being, the Oba Ademola has decided to give you the most magnificent member of his realm. The elephant is a noble within the Oba's court and should provide you with quite a meal. What trickery is this? Have you not agreed to eat but one vassal each month of the Oba's choosing? No man may lie when he looks into my eyes. What you say must be true. The dragon paused as if thinking. But in one thing you err. I demanded one vassal per month, but I never promised to eat but one. When I am done with this wretched elephant, I'll eat both you and your Oba as well, just for good measure. The dragon turned, allowing Oludara the opportunity to take a deep breath. The dragon wrapped itself around the elephant's neck. The elephant fought mightily, throwing its weight from side to side. The dragon appeared to suffer during the struggle, but eventually managed to strangle the tied animal. After a short rest, it unhinged its jaw and fit its mouth around the elephant. It began with the hind legs, which Oludara assumed was to avoid swallowing the tusks point first. Its skin stretched to the limit as it crushed the elephant bit by bit. 
It required hours to ingest the entire animal, ending when the trunk receded into its bloated body. When it finished, it slithered away heavily without even looking at Oludara. Oludara smiled as the dragon's boast of eating him remained unfulfilled, much as he expected. Oludara waited a full hour before setting out after the dragon. He found it only half the distance it had crawled the previous time. It lay spread out, too bloated to coil properly. Oludara looked at the face and saw both eyes closed. All along the dragon's belly where the elephant lay inside, the skin stretched out enough to separate the scales, exposing the flesh beneath. Oludara found the part which contained the tusks. Using the tusks as a brace beneath the skin, he made an incision with his ivory knife. The dragon could do nothing more than shudder as he opened it. So I gave the head to the Oba, and he allowed me to take the skin back to my village, where we made many useful articles from it, and that is the end of my tale. Gerard sat quietly, digesting all he had heard. It was Oludara who finally broke the silence, after sipping the last bit of water. So, Antonio's group must have done something similar? It appears they found a giant tapir, probably the closest thing to your elephant available in these parts, and tied it to a tree as bait. But even with their ruse it still took fifty men and over a hundred rounds of harkbus fire to bring down the beast. I'd say your kill was much more elegant. Oludara smiled at the compliment. Gerard leaned forward. I have a proposition for you. Brazil is a land for the taking. Precious stones, magic, and adventure without limit are spread throughout this giant unexplored territory. There would be hundreds arriving daily if not for the monsters which inhabit the wilds. Fame and fortune await those brave enough to face them, and quick enough to find them first. Yes, agreed Oludara, both here and in Africa, two places the white man has not yet overrun with his civilizations, the ancient magics still live strong. Gerard continued, I discovered Brazil through the writings of Hans Staden and André Tevet, European explorers who published their adventures back home. The chance for adventure enthralled me, and I sold everything to make my way here. This is a chance to live like the ancient heroes of Greece, battling monsters and magic. Europe has forgotten those times. The nations are constantly at war, killing each other at the whims of monarchs, switching alliances like most men switch clothes. Here, there is real adventure. So why do you come to me? Because Antonio won't allow me to serve under his standard. Worse, he's accused me of vagrancy, and I could be arrested at any moment. But I refuse to quit. I want to form my own band and explore the Brazilian wilderness. To do that, I need your help. I need someone clever, fast on their feet. I'm not a stupid man. I'm educated, but I'm just not shrewd enough. Like yesterday, Perro doubled your price on the spot. A clever man would have tricked him into getting you for half don't you think? Yes, a clever man would have pointed out my insolence as a defect, not a strength, made me look like a troublemaker, and made him want to pass me off on an outlander like yourself, instead of risking problems with an important client. See, that's it, said Gerard. Defeating monsters requires guile, and if what you say is true, you've probably got more experience than anyone here. I need your cunning, and it looks like you can hold your own in battle as well. It is true, replied Oludara. I have fought both men and monsters, and still I live. So, if I free you, will you go with me? You would go with two where other men walk in fear with fifty? Well, yes, if those two are us. Oludara laughed deeply. Yes, it is good I have a sense of humor, because you are a funny man. As I said before, I keep my spirits up and never lose hope, and I don't believe anything happens by chance. 
our meeting in the plaza appears to have been particularly fortuitous, and I don't doubt the guards had something to do with it. Perhaps they even placed me into the slaver's hands so I could live out some purpose here on the other side of the world. However, he continued, I have no desire to spend the rest of my life in the Brazilian wilderness. I must return to my people by the time I reach thirty years of age and start a family. For a man without children lives a sad life in the afterworld. If you agree to release me from service in five years' time, and see me safely back to Africa, I will accompany you. Agreed. Now, to the details. I have but one sword, but I do have a spare gun you can use. I won't use it. The long bows the natives carry suit me better. They are more accurate than the Portuguese hawkbusses. I will require one shortly after we begin. However, I do ask that you trade the gun for an ivory knife, which is in possession of Martim, one of Perrault's crew. You will recognize it by the carving of lightning on one side and an axe on the other. You should also see what medicinal herbs you can obtain here in Salvador. Afterwards, we can get more from the natives. All right, said Gerard. Now, what about the others? Which others? The other slaves from Africa. They are not my tribe, not my concern. You were the only one taken? Yes. How? I alone held off thirty rival warriors armed with harkbusses for three days so that my people could escape. They came raiding for slaves to sell to the Portuguese. That is how I know of the inaccuracy of the harkbusses. Once you travel with me, you'll see that a harkbus can be quite accurate in the proper hands. How did you hold them off for so long? Traps. Misdirection. If we travel together, you will see that I have many tricks at my disposal. There's just one problem, said Gerard. Thanks to my indiscretion yesterday, Perro is asking 40,000 rays for you, almost double the price of most slaves. I don't have nearly that much money. Sassi Perri. What? In a dream last night, a voice whispered that I could only be freed by Sassi Perri. I can say no more. Gerard walked the steps down to the docks. He had roamed the entire town, which didn't take long, and was running out of people to ask about Sassi Perri. Not a single person recognized the name. He found a group of sailors resting under a tree. An Indian stood nearby, back toward the group, looking up curiously at a ship. Like all natives, he was naked except for intricate designs painted on his body in black dye. Excuse me, Gerard asked, but do any of you men know a Sassi Perri? The sailors grunted and shook their heads. Gerard scanned the docks for others. I can tell you about Sassi Perri. Gerard turned and jumped in surprise at hearing Spanish-accented Portuguese coming from the Indian. Upon closer inspection, he saw that the man's features were not Indian, but European, around sixty years old, but with skin tanned dark by the sun. Pardon my surprise. I thought you were an Indian come to trade in the city. Many make that mistake. I am Gerard Van Oost. Gerard held out a hand. The unusual man shook his hand firmly. I am called Pirahu, but long ago I was known as Miguel. How did you come to be dressed like a native? You have heard of the legendary Karamuru, the shipwrecked Portuguese who became an Indian chief? Exactly. His story and mine are intertwined. I was a sailor on the Spanish carrack Madre de Rios, which shipwrecked here in the Bay of All Saints in 1535. Most who survived the wreck were killed by the Indians, but some twenty of us were taken prisoner to be used in one of their cannibalistic feasts. Just as they prepared to cook us, Karamuru arrived and convinced them to set us free. Most of my shipmates eventually returned to Spain, but Karamuru's daughters, along with the Indian princess Paraguacu, were the most beautiful women I had ever laid eyes on, 
so I convinced one of them to marry me, and I joined the tribe. Amazing. So you never returned to Europe? No, replied Pirahu, looking at one of the caravels docked in the bay. But it looks like Europe is coming here. Now, weren't you asking about Sasi Pereri? Yes, I need to find him. Pirahu laughed. Find Sasi Pereri? Intelligent people try to avoid him. And even if you do want to meet him, you don't find Sasi. He finds you. But you see, I'm in a bit of a hurry. I only have three days in which to find him. Be careful. Dom Sebastian of Portugal may be king of these settled lands, but Sasi and his cousin, Curupira, are the lords of the Brazilian wilderness beyond the coast. They protect the forest and don't take kindly to strangers. But a friend of mine heard in a dream that I must find him. A dream? Pirahu studied him. Yes, in that case you must seek him out. Visions cannot be ignored. So how will I know him? His appearance is that of a young black boy with a pointy red cap, but his most distinguishing feature is that he has but one leg. Don't be fooled, though. It's not a handicap. He can hop faster on that leg than most men can run. And how will I find him? Like I said, you don't find him. He finds you. But he does have a penchant for tobacco. You might attract him if you can find some high-quality herb. Tobacco? All right. I'll try it. But beware, he is mischievous. If little things go wrong, it is because Sassy is near. And how might I obtain a favor? Sassy does favors for no one. His only favor is allowing you to travel the forest unharmed. Although it is rumored his power lies in his red hat, that might be the key. Thank you, sir, replied Gerard, forgetting Pirahu's Indian name. I must be off immediately. I hope our paths meet again. If Sassy allows it, I'm sure they will. Gerard, a heavy pack on his back, was just a few hundred yards beyond the north gate when he heard a horse galloping behind him. He turned to see Antonio riding up. "'Gerard! What luck!' called Antonio. "'I was hoping to tell you the news myself.' "'What news?' "'The governor has accepted my request to try you for vagrancy. It appears you spent the last of your coin on tobacco and don't have enough left for the passage home.' "'Word travels fast in Salvador. Even faster when such news is propitious.' I myself advised Governor Almeida of your predicament, Antonio laughed. Vices can so easily push a weak man over the edge. Such a pity. With the evidence at hand, a conviction is assured. If you're still in Brazil by noon Thursday, you must present yourself before the governor. The same day Oladara goes to Rio, said Gerard under his breath. What was that? asked Antonio, squinting. None of your concern. Is that all you have to tell me? I have some important business to conduct outside the city, and your prating is causing me delay. Antonio glared down at him. If you're leaving Salvador, Gerard, I suggest you don't return. Antonio turned his horse and headed back to town. Gerard continued down the forest path. Gerard sat and leaned against a fallen tree. He pulled out his pipe and tobacco pouch for the twentieth time that day. He had roamed far into the forest, stopping randomly to smoke. Just looking at tobacco was starting to make him ill. His only consolation was that traveling in the woods allowed him to leave his formal clothes back in the city and wear a cotton shirt and breeches more suited to the tropical climate. He fumbled at the knot of the pouch for almost a minute, unable to open it. I don't remember tying the pouch that way, he said to himself. He shrugged and reached into a pocket for his knife. He felt around, unable to find it. After searching for several minutes, he finally discovered it deep within his pack. I don't remember putting that there. He removed the knife from the sheath and began cutting the knot. The knife passed harmlessly over the cord. Upon closer inspection, he noticed that the knife's blade was completely dull. I just sharpened this today. Then came the realization. Sassy Pedity, he shouted. You're correct, 
came a high-pitched voice from beside him. But I don't like being called by my entire name. It's much too formal. Just call me Sassy. Gerard spun to see an individual exactly as Pirahu had described, a young black boy with one leg and a red cap. He also wore short red leggings, but his chest was uncovered and hairless. His musculature was undeveloped like that of a prepubescent boy. When he smiled, it reminded Gerard of a guilty child feigning innocence. Sassy hopped to the log and dropped down beside Gerard. That smells like good smoke. You wouldn't happen to have a bit for me there, would you? If you can untie the knot, Gerard held out the pouch. You can take as much as you like. I have plenty more. Sassy grabbed the pouch and untied the knot so quickly that Gerard couldn't follow the movement of his fingers. He then lifted his red hat, shook it three times, and a wooden pipe fell from it. Gerard noticed strange symbols carved into the pipe. After filling the pipe, Sassy took a puff and the tobacco lit instantly without fire. Now that is good smoke, he said, leaning back and blowing a few smoke rings. So tell me why you've entered my forest. I came seeking you. Then you must want my permission to travel the wilderness. Most don't have the courtesy to ask, and they soon regret their lack of manners. I do indeed plan on adventuring the wild lands of Brazil. You seem like a nice gentleman, so I'll allow you to travel my forest. On the condition, you always have a pouch of tobacco ready in case we should ever cross paths. Fair enough. And you must do as little damage to the forest as possible, using only what you need. Does that include the monsters? You mean the magical beasts? Sassy shrugged. Do with them what you wish, for they would do the same to you. That is good, because I plan to make a name for myself confronting the creatures of these lands. But, in truth, I have come here to ask something else of you. Sorry, said Sassy annoyance in his voice, but I grant no other favors. I have offered to leave you be, and that is already much. I appreciate that, but I was told to visit you and request something that only you can give. Then whoever sent you is a fool. Sassy laughed at an even higher pitch than his speaking voice. Then he disappeared, leaving only a puff of smoke from his pipe to show he had ever been there. A rustling sound came from Gerard's left, and a boar burst from the bushes, charging him. He jumped and grabbed a nearby tree branch, scrambling up the trunk with his legs. The boar paused at the bottom of the tree and sniffed around. Gerard could hear a high-pitched laughing in the distance. He found a nook in which to sit and waited several minutes until the animal left. Ever since his encounter with Saucy the day before, such torments had become commonplace. A hole had mysteriously formed in his pack, forcing him to backtrack and find items which had fallen out. His water had been replaced by radish juice, and a few drops of honey hidden in his breeches had led to a nasty surprise from some ants. Also, Every knot tied was soon untied, and vice versa. After climbing down from the tree, he yelled out, Sassy Perry, stop tormenting me. I must speak with you. Sassy appeared several paces in front of him. Well then, go ahead and speak. I need a favor, which only you can provide. Tell you what, if you can catch me, I'll grant your wish. All right. Without thinking, Gerard ran forward. However, his first step brought him face first with the ground. With another high-pitched laugh, Saucy vanished from sight. Gerard looked down to find a rope binding his boots together with an incredibly complex knot. So, he likes knots, does he? He said as he reached down to remove the boots. It was Thursday, the day of reckoning for both him and Oludara, so Gerard prayed for one last appearance of Saucy. If he did appear, Gerard would know he would have to make the most important shot of his life. No harder than shooting a fly off an apple at twenty paces, he joked to himself. To relieve the cramping, he shifted his body within the blind he had built. Even with the harkbus resting on a support branch, it was difficult to spend so much time in firing position. Thirty feet from him lay a path, 
and upon that path lay the most complex knot he could ever have imagined. He had used eleven cords of varying sizes, and spent no less than four hours tying them together as intricately as possible. In the end, the knot had a diameter of three feet. Visions of Alexander and the Gordian knot flashed through Gerard's head, and he chuckled, thinking how primitive that ancient knot must have been compared to his masterpiece. A movement caught his eye, and he held still. Sasi came hopping along the path and stopped just before the massive knot. He bent down to examine it, then righted himself and looked around carefully. Gerard held his breath as Sasi's gaze passed over him. After several visual sweeps, Sasi bent down and began untying the knot with blinding speed. Gerard knew he had only seconds to act. He held his breath and fired the harkbus. He waved his hand to clear the smoke and saw Sasi frantically patting his bald head with both hands, searching for the cap which Gerard's perfect shot had sent flying. Gerard loosed the rope beside him, which released a net hidden high in the canopy. He ran to the path and scooped up the red hat. Sasi lay sobbing beneath the net. Please, free me. I will die in minutes without my hat. I did you no harm. I wouldn't say the prank with the ants was exactly harmless, but don't try to fool me. I know you're a trickster. You won't get your hat back until you grant my favor. Sasi stopped his pouting and sighed. Very well. What is your wish? My heart's greatest desire is one hundred gold cruzados. Is that all? Most men would ask for an entire gold mine. I want to make my own way in this world and create my own legend. Then why are you so concerned with one hundred cruzados? I need to pay the price of a slave. Saucy turned away. Then you might as well strike me down. I would never help a man acquire a slave. Saucy's voice lowered for the first time, serious. I was once a slave. A young boy on the first slave ship ever to arrive from Africa. Until a treacherous death and magic turned me into what I am. You don't understand, replied Gerard. I don't wish to buy him. I wish to buy his freedom. In return, he has agreed to aid me for five years. He will accompany me through the wilderness of Brazil, braving the mysteries there. Is what you say true? Yes. Sasi paused. In that case, I will give you what you need and allow both of you to travel my lands. But I'll keep an eye on you. If you don't hold your part of the bargain, I'll torment you for the rest of your life. I'm a man of my word. All right. Give me the hat. First, said Gerard, make an oath. I swear I will give you your one hundred cruzados. Swear it on the forest. I swear upon my realm, the forest. Very well. Gerard lifted a corner of the heavy net, and Saucy crawled out. Gerard tossed him the hat. Saucy shook the hat four times, and a golden nugget fell into his palm. He placed his hat back on and proceeded to rub the nugget between his hands. As he did so, golden coins appeared, clinking together as they fell to the ground. After a large pile had formed, Saucy shoved the nugget back under his hat and said, That should cover the price. I would have given you a gold brick, but people might have thought you found it in the wilderness and then I'd have more serious problems. Yes, agreed Gerard. If gold is ever found in Brazil, I fear even you won't be able to hold back the invasion. Saucy blinked out of sight without warning. His voice came from the woods. Don't forget, I'll be watching you. Gerard began picking up the coins. Gerard, panting, burst into the governor's office. Governor Almeida sat behind an exquisite mahogany desk. He wore a black, flat cap with a puffy white feather and a burgundy shoulder cape clasped at the neck by a gold chain. Antonio, also formally dressed, leaned by the governor's side, apparently in the middle of some conversation. The governor frowned and said, Gerard Van Oost, you're late. Sorry, governor, he replied. I came running with a sack of gold weighing me down. Gold? replied the governor, raising an eyebrow. 
Antonio squinted menacingly at Gerard. Yes, said Gerard, one hundred cruzados, gold enough to buy the freedom of a slave. His name is Oludara. What is this? shouted Antonio. Where did you acquire such a fortune? Governor Almeida raised a hand to quiet Antonio. One hundred cruzados, did you say? he asked. That's forty thousand rays. Quite an extravagant price for a slave. I don't consider it right to put a price on any man, replied Gerard, but by any measure, this one is extraordinary. I expect the usual tax will be paid on the sale. Perro de Bellum will pay the required amount. Governor Almeida studied Gerard for a few moments before speaking. Antonio has charged you with vagrancy in practicing the Protestant religion. Protestantism isn't a crime under the laws of Brazil, and I can't see how a man of your means could be called a vagrant. Thus, I am forced to dismiss the case. But, Governor, started Antonio, I am sorry, Antonio, but I must uphold the law. Governor, said Gerard, if I may, I would like to ask a boon. The Governor raised his eyebrows and leaned forward. What is it? I wish to form a troop under my own banner, to explore the wilderness at will. Antonio choked back a sound. And who will serve under your standard? asked the Governor. Myself and Oludara, that is, if he chooses to accompany me. You mean just the two of you? You're not the first person to ask me that question this week. Governor Almeida held his sides and laughed. Antonio, he said, why are you spending so much effort to lock this man away when he's practically offering to kill himself? I can't arrest him, but I can do you one favor. He looked toward Gerard and said, Gerard, your request is granted. Antonio glowered silently. Now, will that be all? asked the governor. I am busy preparing an expedition against the French raiders in Paraiba. Governor, said Gerard, today I have gained all that my heart desires. I'll take no more of your time, as I also have an expedition to plan. He bowed and left the office. As Gerard passed through the main hall of the governor's palace, he heard quick footsteps behind him. He turned just as Antonio grabbed his shoulder. Play the hero as long as you can, Gerard, he said, but the wilderness is my territory. Pray we don't cross paths. Even after all your treachery, replied Gerard, I hold you no grudge, and there are greater dangers than you in the Brazilian wilderness. We'll see, replied Antonio. He turned his back and stomped from the hall. Oludara, wearing a brand new cotton outfit Gerard had purchased for him, stepped through the door into Perro's office. Magnificent. The same word that came to mind the first time Gerard saw him was the only way he could think to describe Oludara in his new clothes. So, do you like the clothes? They are suitable, although it might be more advantageous to travel naked, as the natives do. Gerard, his Protestant mind jarred by the suggestion, couldn't help but blush. I don't think we'll be doing that. The clothes will be fine. He laid the ivory knife on the table. Oludara picked it up and passed his fingers slowly across the carvings. A single tear slid down his face. Very good. Gerard handed him a backpack. The herbs are in there, along with the rest of our equipment. It appears that Sasi even added a few of his own when I wasn't looking. Really? I thought Sasi did favors for no man. It appears he has taken an interest in our adventures. That could be very good or very bad. Most likely both, said Gerard. But I still have one question for you. Do you go willingly on this dangerous journey? You would still give me the option to refuse? asked Oludara. I didn't pay to buy you, said Gerard. I paid to free you. I would not face the dangers of Brazil with a man who does not go of his own free will. Oludara smiled. You have proven yourself quite a man this week, Gerard Van Oost. 
Catching Sassy shows you are more resourceful than you give yourself credit. And you could have asked him for anything, but you chose to free me. I see you are more serious about this venture, and very brave. I do not choose companions lightly, but I know that you will be a worthy one. I would serve you for five years to pay my debt, but since you would have it so, I go with you as a friend. They smiled and shook hands. Then I suppose that makes it official, said Gerard. Now we're a team. Look at what I made. He unfurled a linen standard. Upon it, sketched roughly in black dye, appeared an elephant and a macaw. Gerard noticed Oludara cringe at the poor drawings and added, It's just a rough idea for now. We can improve it later. I speak truthfully when I say that what you have there is the ugliest, yet at the same time most wonderful standard I have ever seen. Then we are in full agreement, said Gerard, and since we have our standard, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't leave immediately. Indeed, the dawn does not come twice to wake a man. Many adventures lie before us. Let us not make them wait. High atop the church of the Immaculate Conception, a scarlet macaw cocked its head and watched two men, one white and one black, as they crossed Salvador's central plaza and left the city through the north gate. Do pop over to Christopher's site and do pop over to Jonathan's site and do tell everyone we are playing Nebula-nominated stories. Next up is our good friend, Fred Heimbaugh, with his graphic fan. Hello, Sofa people. Fred Heimbaugh here, bringing greetings, as usual, from all the peace-loving people of planet Earth. This is graphic fan number five, happy and sad. I admit it, I hate Superman. You know, don't you, that superhero fans are locked in an eternal civil war over Superman? The haters complain that he is too perfect. I tend to agree. That's why I'm drawn to superheroes that are damaged or immature, like Batman and Spider-Man, or that outdo the old superhero standards in realism, like Astro City, which I reviewed positively last time, there's a third category as well, superheroes packaged in supermodern graphic experimental novel techniques. Retro girl, that's your cue. That's right, step out here into the light where everyone can see you. Look at her, folks. She's dressed like a traditional superhero in a garish costume with red cape. Atypically, she's also bleeding from the mouth and dead. The title is Powers, Who Killed Retro Girl? Detective Walker is a cop with a complicated relationship with the superhero world he's investigating. His depression is balanced by the perky confidence of his new partner, a woman named Dina Pilgrim, who looks half his age and one quarter his body mass. The story is interesting enough with a dash of soap opera to keep things spicy, but I like best the complicated arrangement of speech balloons that approximate beautifully the aggressive, interrupted, and interrupting speech of cops in a crowded precinct station. I also love the occasional use of a separate line of panels across the bottom of the page that represent the way a television sound and images overlap with the speech and actions of people in public places. 
It's a nifty, artsy effect in its own right, but it also delivers some important info dumps discreetly and stylishly. The art is harsh with a sawtooth edge, which is appropriate for a story about a super cadaver resistant to hacksaws and blowtorches, and therefore resistant to autopsies. Powers, Who Killed Retro Girl, created by Brian Michael Bendis and Mike Avon Omig, published in 2009. It's sad. I like it when it's sad. Now we're going to depart the science fiction genre a bit. I've got more graphic novels I can't wait to tell you about, and I just don't care that some of them don't obey the strict, rigid genre discipline that we usually maintain here on the Starship Sofa. That was sarcastic, by the way. Reading The Chaos Effect was moving and provoking and eye-opening, but it wasn't exactly fun. It's about 30 years old now, created by the Yugoslavian cartoonist Enki Bilal, collaborating with author Pierre Christine. It's the story of an elderly veteran of the Spanish Civil War, an idealistic leftist, who learns of an atrocity committed by an old nemesis, the Black Order Brigade. He decides to round up his scattered comrades and wreak vengeance upon the murderers. He declares it will be our last adventure, and for a moment he has a Ulysses epiphany. You know the poem, don't you, by Tennyson? It ends like this. Though much is taken, much abides, and though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Stirring stuff, but the fate of these old adventurers is doomed. The artist sketches these people with loving devotion to the ravages of time. I've never seen so many moles, pores, wrinkles, or liver spots in one place, certainly not in a graphic novel. The corrupt union boss especially has been given the face he deserves, that of a bulldog's corpse. Time has also ravaged their youthful idealism. After the group scores its first kill, the mood sours. They regret the deaths of two innocent bystanders. Unlike the fascists, they retain just a little too much conscience for this line of work. Meanwhile, the union boss dies of a heart attack. In the end, the political point of these stories is nuanced, not to say muddled, yet the ending has its effect. The reader understands this comic is, at its heart, a meditation on the shrinking vigor and expanding regret of old age. According to an old saying, Friends come and go, but enemies accumulate. Guilt is one of those enemies. Okay, enough of the sad stories. Out of the happy bin, we pull Cowboy Ninja Viking. For all of its violence and darkness, it's a laugh riot. We have a CIA operative responsible for a failed attempt to create the ultimate soldier through the time-honored fighting enhancement technique of... You know what I'm going to say next, don't you? 
through the time-honored fighting enhancement technique of artificially induced schizophrenia. Yes, really. These fighters, each of whom is endowed with three separate personalities, have all gone berserk. And my question in response to that is, was anyone surprised? The project is shut down, and most of the so-called triples are safely warehoused. But not all, naturally, because without that there's no story, right? Our protagonist is the cowboy ninja viking of the title. Yes, the triplets' personalities tend toward archetypes, frequently military archetypes, but not always. The triplet containing an Amish personality is disadvantaged in battle for obvious reasons. I love the graphic device used to let you know which personality is speaking. The speech balloons incorporate little silhouettes to tip you off. When the cowboy speaks, you see a silhouette of a pistol. For the ninja, it's a samurai sword. For the viking, it's an axe. Once again, the graphics people solve an artistic problem efficiently by letting the graphic medium do what it is suited to do. As you read, you hear the pistol talk, or the sword, or the axe. So basically, you figured out from this review that this graphic novel is visually stylish and original. The story really held me too, until the end, where it veered suddenly to set up the sequels. I suspect editorial meddling is to blame. In fact, the official website implies this ongoing series was originally intended to last only four issues. Yes, I know there's something terribly wrong about making fun of schizophrenia, which in real life is a gut-wrenching tragedy. But Cowboy Ninja Viking really delivers the laughs. It's happy, and I recommend it. Cowboy Ninja Viking is science fiction, but the science rests lightly upon it. It is the science of the psyche. And so it is also with Green Manor, a two-volume series of Victorian horror, mystery, psychological thriller. There's no SF present here at all, but I like this graphic novel so much I couldn't resist a quick mention. Green Manor is French in origin, drawn by Denise Baudart and written by Fabien Villemon. The English translation was published in 2008. The plots were conceived with a Gallic wickedness and are framed by the story of Thomas Bellow, a mad institutionalized former servant of the Green Manor Gentlemen's Club. The year is 1897. The club is a place of cigars and brandy snifters, smug courtesy, and murder. By the end, the club's death rate has risen so high, a member might long for the relative safety and comfort of the Battle of the Somme. Thomas Bellow calls himself the club's soul and seeks to prove it to his skeptical therapist, Dr. Thorne, by telling him of all he has observed take place in the club down through the years. As he puts it, my walls have been witness to all the weird, ridiculous, or sordid happenings. I have seen so many shattered destinies, and all the spilt blood. And so, Bellow tells tales of the bizarre, like the murder without a victim and without a murderer, like a man who informs a famous detective of the exact time of a murder and the exact victim 
and dares him to stop it. Like a detective retiring in shame, unable to solve his last case, unable to arrest the murderer that only he knows does not exist. Like a pair of club members who regard murder as an art form and aspire to give it its masterpiece. Like a man from the ancient past who devises the means to kill men repeatedly down through the years long after his death, but only those who deserve it most. Like a victim of an attempted murder, paralyzed and mute, still contriving to get his revenge. As you can see, the author loves to show off. He's completely in love with locked room mysteries. The more locks, the better. I like that trait. If you do too, if you believe that murder can be happy, you'll love Green Manor. Finally, I'll mention the happiest manga series I've ever found. It's called Oishinbo, and its science fiction content is an utter nullity. It's all about Japanese cuisine. Although, come to think of it, the things that the Japanese eat are so weird, maybe science fiction isn't such an off characterization. Oishinbo is fun because the plots are light as a meringue, yet they never collapse into nothing. The denouement of each section hinges on some little-known food fact. The main character is Yamaoka-san, a lazy but perceptive food critic for a major Japanese newspaper. His nemesis is his father, a nationally famous expert on food, art, and aesthetics. The father's sense of taste is legendary, yet somehow, when it comes to his relationship with his son, all sense of proportion is lost. The father is an abusive tyrant to a ridiculous degree. Since Yamaoka-san and his father are preparing rival ultimate menus for their respective newspapers, they have many opportunities to butt heads. This series is hugely popular in Japan, requiring, as in Cowboy Ninja Viking, a restructuring of the plot to justify volumes in excess of the original plan, it also spun off a 136-episode anime series. Only part of the manga series has been translated into English. That series, of which I have read five volumes, is thematically based and so draws from the original in a haphazard way, resulting in plot continuity problems. For example, Yamaoka is having twins with his wife, Yuko Kurita, and later is dating her. Or not. His laziness extends to his romantic pursuits as well. If the plot mattered, that would be a problem. The volumes I've read cover Japanese cuisine, fish, vegetables, rice, and pub food. The remaining volumes cover ramen and sake. The attention to perfection gets crazy sometimes. I found out Japanese chefs have a special blackboard on which they can pour grains of rice to more easily inspect each grain individually. On the other hand, the volume on pub food has a recipe for sardine cakes that anyone could make and sounds delicious. I know some people don't care about the finer side of eating. Others believe reading about food is decadent, or at least pointless, compared to the act of shoveling it in. Some of you will love Oishinbo, however, and I imagine you've already figured out 
who you are. That's it for this time. See you later. Fred's, uh, when I got, what was really funny with Fred as well, Fred sent the email and says, Truly, I'm drinking, I think it was a, was it a ginger wine or ginger beer Fred was drinking from the northeast of England. And actually, I've seen, I haven't seen the actual, the one he was drinking, but they make this kind of vintage Coca-Cola over there. And it's, it's not Coca-Cola how we kind of, it's just, I think it's just called Coke over here, but it's, it's, it's. It's almost aniseedy in taste, you know, it's got a certain like Dr. Peppery bizarre taste to it. And it's in all these kind of little health shops, this, these original Coke, I, I think it's called, it might be something like that. But Fred was on with these, I'm supping this, Tony. So Fred, not too much of it, sir. <laughs> Next up is part four of Michael Swanick's How to Run a Con. Hello, this is Daga. And I'm Surplus. And we're here to teach you how, how to, to run, run a con. con. The topic we want to discuss today is greed. Nine times out of ten, when a con goes bad, it's because somebody other than the mock got greedy. The perfect example of this is Charles Ponzi, a man of genius and one of the greatest swindlers in the history of the profession. Not only did he rake in fabulous amounts of money, but his great invention, the Ponzi scheme, continues to be practiced to this day. A refinement of it, the pyramid scheme, is a perennial popping up every few decades to take in a new generation of gullible citizens. But we digress. An Italian by birth, Charles Ponzi emigrated to America, the land of opportunity, with, as he put it, $2.50 in cash and $1 million in hopes. After some setbacks involving kited checks, smuggled illegal immigrants, and a few years in various penitentiaries, he came up with the innovation that immortalized his name, the Ponzi Scheme. The Ponzi Scheme is elegant in its simplicity. First, you come up with a plausible-sounding method for earning higher rates of return than other investors can. In Ponzi's case, it was an elaborate plan for buying postal coupons at reduced rates overseas and redeeming them at full price in the States. Most Ponzi schemers today keep it even simpler. Bernie Madoff, for example, merely claimed to be a better investor than everybody else. Ponzi then promised investors an eye-popping return of 50% at the end of 45 days, or 100% in 90 days. And he delivered on his promise. How? By paying off investors using money given him by new investors. Word spread quickly. New investors flooded in, and as for the old investors, well, where would you keep your profits? In a bank paying one and a quarter percent per year, or by reinvesting it in an enterprise guaranteed to double your money every three months? The question answers itself. Ponzi was also a bit of a showman. At the peak of the mania, he had enormous wire baskets placed beside each of his beautiful female tellers. After they'd written out a receipt for the investment, they'd casually dump the money in the baskets like so much waste paper. Money and beautiful woman, you could hear the investors' brains shutting down from half a continent away. Legitimate financial people knew there was no possible way to earn money at such a rate. Newspapermen questioned why Ponzi put his own money in a conventional bank. But money and beautiful woman, <laughs> the investors, of course, did not listen. Well, nothing lasts forever. There came a time when so many people were withdrawing money to buy a shiny new Cadillac. Or given the era, 
a Stanley steamer, that the whole thing collapsed. It was, after all, built up of nothing but paper and dreams. Charles Ponzi went to jail a victim of his own greed. Had he been willing to settle for a modest profit of a few million dollars, he might have been able to slip away to a more tolerant country while his business was a going concern. As it was, he died a pauper. It's a sad lesson for us all. But Charles Ponzi's legacy is still with us. In fact, after the fall of the Soviet Union, a flurry of Ponzi schemes literally bankrupted Albania. Under communism, the Albanians had been taught virtually nothing about how capitalism worked, only that it was a criminal enterprise run by crooks. So naturally, when crooks asked them to invest in criminal enterprises, they obliged. The moral here is obvious. Don't get greedy. Let other people do that for you. This is Surplus. And I'm Daga, teaching you how, how to, to run, run a con. con. Speaking of pyramid schemes, a new wrinkle on them has just now occurred to me. Oh, my good fellow, I am all ears. Well, let me explain for you. And that's it. Links for to go to, go to see Diane for that fantastic music. Links to Larry, links to everybody, Matthew, and links to Matthew's fiction crawler is all on the site. Do pop over and do come over and do, you know, think about listening to Blood and Chrome. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.